Welcome to the Paracelsus Guest Talk. In this episode, Jan Gerber is welcoming the retired rugby union player, Richard Thorpe. He witnessed the tragic loss of his sister when he was only 13 years old, faced depression at the peak of his career, and lost all purpose and drive once he retired as a professional athlete. He turned it all around against all odds and found a way out of depression to become the rugby union head coach and a successful entrepreneur with a thriving family business. Welcome Richard Thorpe and Jan Gerber. So I'm sitting here with uh, Richard Thorpe. Thank you, Richard, for joining me for this conversation. Why don't you briefly introduce yourself? So um, thank you for the invitation to speak with you. Um, so I'm Richard Thorpe. Um, my background's in professional rugby. Uh, so for 13 years, I was a uh, premiership, championship and international rugby player um, in the UK. Uh, I then transitioned out of pro sport in 2016 um, to set up uh, my family's private office. Um, since then, uh, I've not only been running the, uh, the family office, um, but I've also built a coaching business where I work with professional athletes and um, next generation high net worth families. Brilliant. You have a very powerful personal story um, at the intersection of, of personal trauma, depression, um, and, and uh, your work as a professional athlete uh, on, on top of that and, uh, and your success with your company. Um, can you run me through that specific uh, story and experiences? Yeah, of course. Um, so I, I, I joined uh, a, a team called London Irish, a premiership rugby team, um, when I was 18 years old. Um, went through the academy, made my debut for the first team. Um, all my sort of dreams from when I was younger started to come true. I was starting every week. Um, I was a professional rugby player. Uh, that identity was, uh, was quite important to me at that time. Um, I'd even had a feature done on me on Sky Sports. Everything on the outside seemed great. But at around the age of 23, um, I suddenly found myself struggling to get out of bed in the morning. Everything's going well. I'm still playing. I've got a girlfriend. We're living together. Um, uh, I've got good friends around me. Family's going well. Um, but I was just struggling to get out of bed. I was pressing the snooze button one too many times. And as the weeks passed by, I started to feel myself pulling away from people that are closest to me. Um, I, I didn't want to go and engage with my friends, with my family. Um, I would leave at the last possible moment to go to rugby training, uh, which is obviously what I did every day. Um, and I'd sit in my car until the last possible minute. And at that point, I would go in to attend the meeting because I didn't want to engage with anyone. I've I felt myself beginning to feel feelings of worthlessness, hopelessness, which just didn't seem to align with reality and what was going on. I found the whole thing really quite confusing. And this went on for about three months. Did anybody uh, notice around you what was happening? Not that I'm aware of. Um, I didn't tell anyone. 
um, I, I kept it completely to myself. And after about three months, it just lifted. So after it lifted, you just moved on and then didn't think about that episode anymore until, as I understood, it happened again. Exactly. So I, uh, I, I turned around after the, um, the experience without really putting a label on it. It was just something that I had gone through. And a year later, almost on the nose, um, the same thing happened. Couldn't get out of bed in the morning. Feelings of worthlessness and hopelessness. I started to not want to eat the amounts that I would typically be eating. I mean, as a professional rugby player, I mean, we've got to be putting four to 5,000 calories into our lots, body yeah. a day. Exactly, yeah, just to, in, in order to keep up with the expenditure. Um, yet, I really struggled to eat. Um, again, didn't want to engage with anyone. I would, at the end of the training day, leave as soon as I possibly could, often without even showering, just grab my bag, get in the car and go home, uh, in order to just sit on the sofa, be away from everyone, lock myself away from the world. Because that inside is what I felt I needed to do. I felt like I needed to incubate myself for this, for this time. Um, and during that process, I opened up to my girlfriend, um, who I was living with at the time. And um, I just turned around to her and I said, I'm unhappy. She was like, what, what do you mean? And we sort of loosely spoke about it. Um, I said, look, I'm just not getting pleasure out of anything. Things that usually would make me really happy aren't making me happy. I'd rather not do them. Uh, all I want to do is sit on the sofa and watch episode after episode of The Sopranos. Um, fantastic TV series, by the way, if you haven't seen it. Uh, but that's, that is the truth. That is what I wanted to do at the time. And um, my girlfriend booked for me to go and see a sports psychologist because we didn't really know what was going on at the time. I'd heard terms such as depression and anxiety before, yet I hadn't labelled myself as either of those. A uh, sports psychologist uh, could help you make sense of your situation? That's, I guess that's what I was hoping for. Um, but I mean, as, as you all know, a sports psychologist isn't, uh, their speciality isn't in treating um, mental disorder. It's more for enhancing performance, basically, should be. Exactly, yeah. Had, had I gone to see this person wanting to get more out of my performances on the rugby field, I've gone to see the right person. Yeah. How did you eventually manage to make sense of what you were experiencing? And maybe you can talk me through um, how you gained that insight and also how you could leverage that insight into actually addressing uh, the issues you were facing. Yeah. So. Coming out of my second uh, episode, um, I looked back over the last two years and thought, well, what, what was that all about? My primary symptom was I was just tired all the time. So I, I, I sought help with Google and I typed into Google, why am I so tired all the time? Simple as that. Up came depression, anxiety, mental health, all these things are linked to depression and mental health. And that for me was the wake up call. Did you then, based on that insight, decide 
it's time for me to see an actual therapist, not a sports therapist. Absolutely. So what came out of my research, so I, I started to delve a little bit deeper and realized that, okay, I'm probably struggling with depression. There were 10 things, clearly 10 bullet points of symptoms of struggling with depression. And I just went tick. Tick. You passed tick, the, the tick. depression self-test, basically. I passed. With flying colours. <laughs> yeah, and I passed with flying colours. <laughs> um, so I realised, right, I've been suffering with depression. Um, I've got no idea why, because on the surface, I'm having a really successful career. I'm currently living my childhood dream of being a professional rugby player. I'm starting regularly. I'm having features on Sky, New and Sky Sports. And everything everything I should be happy why is this happening so what came out of my research was medication and talking therapy are the two key things that can help you overcome depression in looking at that I went to seek help from a GP I then went and found a psychotherapist and that really was the turning point for me um, I, from that point on, and I was in my mid-twenties, became fascinated around human behaviour, psychology, why we behave the way we behave, why we are the way we are, why are some people prone to becoming depressed, why are some people prone to suffering with mental health challenges. And what did you find out for yourself as a possible reason why you were undergoing these depressive episodes? Well, I worked with a psychotherapist for two years. Over the course of that time, uh, we, we started to explore things in my past. Um, over the course of that two-year period as well, I, I, I started to struggle with depression again. So that during that time, the person I was working with had to help me through that. Um, you can't do much reflective work when you're currently struggling. Right with depression, um, you, you, you need some, di some different help. But as I came out of that and continued to work with the, uh, with the psychotherapist, we were able to start to unpick certain things in my past. And what we uncovered was when I was 13, uh, my sister was killed in a car crash. Obviously, I was always aware of that. I was always aware that that was very tough on me and my family um, and the people closest to our family. But I hadn't quite appreciated the, the long-term impact that it had on me. And also, the, um, I remember from your story, maybe you can uh, share that as well, the way the specific circumstances of how it happened and the news were brought to you that could be Possibly, one can only speculate, but they could be possibly part of your long-term trauma than if it was handled another way. Yeah, so I was 13 at the time and my uh, family were um, building a new business and that, was, um, that took up a lot of their time. My sister, however, um, was working for Virgin Airways and uh, we were at home alone together and she left to drive round the M25 to Heathrow Airport to fly over to New York. Um, that was around midday. Later that afternoon, around four o'clock, uh, two police officers came round to our house, knocked on the door and um, asked whether they could come in. And it was just me home alone. 
13 years old. 13 years old, yeah. Um, they asked me whether I would like a cup of tea, which was quite bizarre, uh, being offered a cup of tea in your own house. But they oh, fine, yeah. And they went and made me a cup of tea and they sat me down and they told me um, that my sister had just been killed in a car crash. Um, that news, I mean, anyone who's had a, a, a traumatic episode, similar or, or different, will know that you you feel it. You don't feel it in your fingers. You don't feel it in your feet. You don't feel it up in your head. You feel it in your gut. You feel it in your stomach. It is literally gut-wrenching. Um, as they started to explain what had happened, I began to make up my mind that because I'm hearing this first, um, I need to look after the rest of the family. And that just sort of fl fluttered into my mind. And as I started to ask further questions and everything that you could imagine kind of went through my head. It's, I, I spent a lot of time challenging the officers on whether they'd got the right person. Um, surely this, this, things like this don't happen to families like ours. Um, challenge, challenging the officers. But because of the nature of what my family were doing, they're building a business, they weren't around. At, they were still at the office. And two hours went by um, before uh, my family came home. By that time, the grief process, I had kind of had a micro experience of that denial, anger, and so on. Um, but I had made up in my mind at the age of 13 that it's my responsibility to look after the family so that this news, so that this event doesn't crush us. And as my family came home, I was there to try and comfort them. But again, I'm only 13. Um, and that experience manifested itself over the next decade in my behavior, which led to my first experience of depression. In, in how far did it manifest itself in your behavior? Can you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah. So looking after other people at the expense of yourself, remember. So I didn't grieve for my sister until I was in my early 20s. The actual emotional process of, of bereavement, of grief, I didn't actually go through that process fully until I was in my early 20s. I was preoccupied and focused on helping other people around me. That's what's referred to as a people pleaser or a rescuer. And I, it certainly isn't uh, isolated to me in my experience. There are many experiences that people can go through that may manifest themselves in their behavior as being a people pleaser or a rescuer. But if that's the behavior that you start to take on, and it's not aligned really with you and who you are, it is only a function of time until you break down. And I broke down a decade later, at the age of 23. It's a very powerful story. Thank you, Richard. Um, in how far do you think that this traumatizing experience at age 13 
has shaped your career as a professional rugby player. And the reason I'm asking is um, because there's a lot of uh, evidence that traumatic experiences can drive people to enormous uh, achievements and strength because it can be in a way a coping mechanism or a way of, of um, distracting yourself from having to deal with that pain or loss uh, by focusing fully on uh, a career. Yeah, so I, I mean, I look, at my, I look at the rest of my family we subsequently went on to build a very successful company. Myself, I went on to have a very successful career as a professional rugby player. I considered myself a professional rugby player from about the age of 13, around the time of this event. I threw myself into it with every fiber of me. I made sacrifices such as not drinking alcohol, sometimes. <laughs> um, eating well, extra training sessions, running around the block with weights around my ankles, doing press-ups and sit-ups every morning. Not what the average 13-year-old would do. Not what the average 13, 14, 15-year-old typically would do. But my heart was set, my mind was set on being a professional rugby player. And I'm, to, be, to say something very honest, I'm not a very good rugby player. I'm actually not. I'm not particularly skillful. I was just fitter and stronger than anyone else. Uh, I was prepared to do what other people weren't in order to get myself in the physical condition to be able to perform on the pitch. I would argue that the experience that I went through with the death of my sister contributed towards that attitude towards going the extra yard, uh, putting in the extra, uh, the extra sessions and so on. Do you think your family, who went on whilst you were going through your rugby career, was building a, a very successful business? Uh, do you think they were uh, experiencing uh, um, similar dynamics? So they were throwing all the weight into building this company as also possibly a way to, to cope with, uh, with the loss of your sister? I would find it very likely. But it's not a conversation you'd have with them or had with them? Um, not directly. No, but it's, um, it, it, it wouldn't be too hard to stretch the imagination to, th to think that we were successful because of, um, because of the event that we went through together. Um, very often, uh, as I mentioned, you, you actually see that. It's people who uh, experience significant adversity, uh, a trauma of sorts. Um, as a way to, to cope and self-medicate the loss and emptiness, to, to throw everything they've got uh, behind a, a goal. Um, so you can only speculate that, you know, why amongst very successful individuals and families there's a high incidence of mental health issues, addiction, fueled by possible trauma at some point, uh, that actually has led them to become successful. Yeah. So that's, that's a possible correlation between, uh, an explanation between the correlation of uh, success and, and mental health uh, problems. Um, I remember uh, when we talked about uh, your story previously that um, you also mentioned uh, at the later stage when you were experiencing yet another uh, episode of 
depression of of, of uh, feeling at low energy, no motivation, feeling sad. Uh, uh, a way you use to cope is also uh, through acting out on shopping, mm. on watches, jewelries, cars, mm. status symbols. Mm. Um, how maybe, if possible, can 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 you tell me what at, at the time uh, what you know what went through your head when yeah. you made those decisions, and also what happened when you realized actually this is not who I am and this is not what I should be doing. Yeah, so I am um, c coming out of my first experience with um, with psychotherapy, um, I started to study it myself. Um, my, I've got a background now in psychology and psychotherapy. I consider myself quite a resilient person, not only from, from my experiences, but also from um, the information that I've gone out to seek and the, and the um, studying and education that I've done. Um, yet, as a professional sportsman, sadly, we've all got a shelf life. Um, so I guess some golfers can uh, keep on playing until they're a bit older, but um, particularly as professional rugby players, you will have a shelf life around your mid, early to mid-30s. It's a very high-impact sport. It's going to take its toll on your body. I was one of the 30% that are able to choose to retire. Um, the majority of professional athletes, this is, um, are forced to retire through either uh, injury or, um, uh, or not getting their contract renewed. Um, so I went straight into running a new family business, um, our, our family office. And what I had underestimated was the impact transitioning out of being a professional being a professional rugby player would have on my life so bearing in mind that i have considered myself a professional rugby player from the age of 13 i've got two decades worth of my identity being a pro athlete and in the two years after retiring during that process i hadn't fully dealt with and accepted and found a new identity um, uh, in order to have responded to that um, successfully and effectively. I started to effectively self-medicate. And this is something in your industry that you'd come across time and time again. Adversity. Do we deal with it as we should do? As in deal with the emotions around it? That's going to take a long time and it's going to be painful. Or we've got a short-term solution right here in front of you, immediate gratification. Usually it's manifested in alcohol and drugs. That wasn't how I decided to, um, to self-medicate, it was with spending. Well, it's possibly because you, you spent uh, over a decade staying away from alcohol and drugs because there was no choice for you. So maybe that was luck in your instance that uh, it wasn't the logical choice for you to, to, to act out on. It, it, it could very well have been. So it, I see an interesting um, combination of um, journeys that that you've made, uh, where you've experienced, uh, you know, the loss uh, of your sister that then later manifested itself um, in uh, in depressive symptoms, and possibly uh, has driven you to to excel at uh, at sports. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you are a next gen 
mm. uh, second generation of a family fortune, family business running a family office. Um, so you also have access to a, a significant wealth of, of funds, uh, which, uh, uh, as you said, can, when you then experience adversity, can, uh, can be an easy way to act out, to, to self-medicate uh, uh, those issues. And, and uh, last but not least, also if you didn't have the trauma or loss of your sister, the transition from a professional sports career into the life thereafter, redefining your purpose, mm. is also a struggle you went through. And then even though you had already made sense of what depression is, uh, I suffer from that, it hit you yet again in another, in another uh, context. Yeah. So my question uh, to you would be in that specific context, um, what would be your advice for any professional athlete uh, around the theme of retirement, retirement planning and the mental health dimension? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I'd probably like to tackle that question in two parts because um, some athletes are going to retire, they're going to start their new life and then they're going to run into emotional or financial troubles um, and now it needs a reactive answer. To answer reactively, my experience was that I actually wasn't clear on my purpose. Now that I wasn't a professional rugby player anymore, who am I? What is it that I'm doing? But, but here's the thing, I thought I knew. My values were centered around materialism. Certain amounts of money that I'm gonna earn from my businesses, um, houses that I'm gonna live in, uh, etc. My values and my goals were materialistic. Going through that next episode of really struggling, not being able to get out of bed in the morning, pulling away from everyone, yet having been through this before, I was able to immediately go and seek the proper help, speak to the right person, and we started to talk around purpose. And what I discovered is that my values that I thought were important to me actually weren't. The most important things to me are my friends and my family, is my health and well-being of both myself and others, in particular my friends and my family, and then making a meaningful contribution. I want to I leave a lasting impact on the planet in as small a way as, as possible. And this, I kind of looked at the two, the two sets of values that I'd been living at, and they just aren't aligned. So no wonder I ended up in a state that I did. And as soon as I'd started to determine, okay, what is my purpose now? What are my values? And can I start living a life congruent with those values? Now all of a sudden the, the game's changed. And that's where I am now. That's why I'm now working with other professional athletes and other next gens to help them through it because it's aligned with my values. I'm able to spend good quality, meaningful time with my friends and my family. My health, well-being are front of mind and I'm able to help other people with theirs and I'm able to contribute by helping other people. And that, that for me was really determining purpose, realising purpose and what highlighted to me how important it is. Yeah, you mentioned a very important point is purpose and uh, we all need a purpose in life to get out of bed in the morning. 
um, something to look forward to, something to feel proud about, something to feel passionate uh, about. Um, we briefly touched upon the intersection of mental health and wealth. Mm. Um, and I know we've talked about this before. Um, what's your view on, um, on being able to develop a purpose as a next gen, second or third generation, having grown up or growing up in material wealth um, and the ability in those circumstances uh, to develop your own purpose and passion to you know, develop healthily, emotionally? So it's, it's an interesting one because Next gens are, are actually quite diverse in their sort of requirements and experiences and so on. Um, so to speak relatively broadly and generally, um, first gens, if we talk about generations, first gens now uh, come from a different generation to next gens, typically. If you look at your classic first gen, he was probably a baby boomer. He wasn't born into money. He's gone out and built a company, or she has gone out and built a company, and there is now considerable capital in the family as a result of it. But they've had to pull up the shirt sleeves and go to work. The next gen typically has been born into it, or at least has still been young when the money's dropped in. And current next gens, some of them fall, if they're sort of under or around the age of 30 to 35, uh, they fall into the generation of being millennials. And I think a lot of people have heard about millennials, have heard the term anyway. It basically means that you're, you're predisposed to being entitled. And the issue there is there's a difference of values between the generations. The first generation was shirt sleeves and they went out and they worked. They grafted, they've had adversity, they've had good times, but they've also had tough times. And what second generations need to understand is that, well, they need to understand that firstly about their parents. Um, and they need to understand that what they've had, potentially the bubble that they've had around them has prevented them from building the resilience to be able to deal with inevitable setbacks. Set setbacks that are going to happen to everyone. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but people will face adversity in life. You can't, if you're a first gen, you can't protect your children from adversity for the duration of their life. It's just not going to happen. Um, but the problem in, the, in your earlier stages of life by not experiencing adversity, because you're in this environment where everything's taken care of for you, you've got resource. Remember, resource doesn't build resourcefulness. Being resourceful is a learned skill, and often it comes through adversity. So the advice I would give to second generations now is to be mindful of that. Just be aware of it as a first instance, that have you actually been sheltered most of your life? Do you have much adversity, experiences in your past which have forced you to grow? Like when you go to the gym, if you want to build muscle, you go and you lift weights. When you lift weights, 
you break down the muscle, mm -hmm. the muscle then rebuilds and it rebuilds stronger. Well, it's the same with your emotional strength. Sometimes adversity is what builds emotional resilience. Just being mindful of that, pushing yourself to the edge of your comfort zone, maybe extending your boundaries, not only it could lift your life into a, into a more successful place, but don't be afraid of any potential adversity that might be there. Because actually that could be an opportunity in and of itself. What would be your advice to athletes that are currently still playing on top of their game um, when it, with regard to retirement planning and the mental health side of it? Because you mentioned you struggled. What would be your advice to somebody who doesn't have that on their radar yet? Well, f firstly, let me talk about the problem. 60% of professional footballers are bankrupt within five years of retiring. 60%. Flip over the pond to the United States, 80% of American footballers are bankrupt within two years. So financially, there are some serious concerns if you're a high-earning professional athlete. It almost seems the more money you earn, the quicker you go bankrupt and the more likely it is that you're going to go bankrupt. And is that because you are used to a certain level of spending but suddenly at the end of your career no money's coming in anymore or is it more than that? I, th I think a lot of it is the, is the nature of a, um, a professional athlete that's earning that sort of money. Let's take professional footballers, it's quite competitive. Who's got the latest Lamborghini in the car park? If you've spent a decade, particularly in your late teens, early and mid-twenties, those formative years, behaving like that, you're carrying that behaviour on into later life. So when you retire and the money stops coming in, you've still got the habit, you've still got the predisposition to go out and be competitive with the boys and so on. So, yeah. To answer your question, I don't think the spending stops. I think as well as I struggled with, spending can be a way of masking pain that's coming in from elsewhere, maybe pain surrounding your own retirement. Um, and and the game. losing of your who you are, your role, your purpose as an athlete. Abs absolutely, yeah. But not only financial, I mean, I, f I think financial, there's a, there can be a bit of a knock-on effect. Gambling is prolific in professional sport, particularly in football. Um, and that becomes worse when you're masking some sort of issue, when you're self-medicating. Gambling in particular mirrors chemically in your brain, mirrors the highs and lows of a game on the weekend. Something that now is no longer with you because you've retired from the game, you, have, you will have as a professional athlete maybe an addiction, but you are certainly used to euphoric highs, devastating lows from winning and losing games, from making the team and not making the team. So you say a professional athlete can be, or let me rephrase that, would you say a good, excellent professional athlete has a dimension of being addicted to what they're doing, to their sports, to their game? Absolutely. You look, what's, what's released when you score a, score a try in the Premiership final or score a goal in the World Cup semi-final? What's released in your brain is dopamine. That's a very uh, addictive, highly addictive uh, neurochemical. Yeah, as context is uh, 
somebody consuming cocaine. It's it's the same thing. Dopamine is flooding your brain. So you asked me, is it addictive? Mm. Being a professional sportsman, ask a co cocaine addict, is dopamine addictive? Th there's your answer. Mm -hmm. um, that can be mirrored, not only with with recreational drugs, gambling. It's been shown it has the same impact. So you could argue that when you're retiring as a professional athlete, you are going through withdrawal symptoms because you're not playing the game anymore. So you compensate that with gambling, possibly drugs, possibly... That's exactly it. And per perhaps professional athletes are weaning themselves off a career in professional sport through recreational drugs and gambling because both of those are quite prevalent in retired professional athletes. So to answer your original question, um, that's the why, that's the why. Financial issues, bankruptcy, um, divorce rates, very high. Uh, your chances of developing depression are very high. Uh, more than a 50% chance in professional rugby um, that you'll become depressed within two years of retiring. Um, these are the reasons why a current professional athlete needs to be taking his transition seriously. Now, I can already hear a 23-year-old pro footballer saying, why do I need to worry about my transition? I've got still a decade or two left in me. Hang on a minute. If I was still playing, I could get injured, standing up, walking over to the other side of the room, trip over, tear my cruciate ligaments, I can't play again. Injury can be around the corner to any current pro athlete. And what happens with injury? If it's a career-ending injury, it's now just happened earlier. You're no longer in your early 30s with a decade's worth of earnings behind you. You're actually in your early 20s, potentially, with a decade of aspiration behind you and you haven't achieved your goals. That there can be a serious issue to try and overcome. If you haven't actually reached your peak yet, now something like a career-ending injury comes along and you can't play the game anymore, well, not only is there loss of identity, there's a whole host of other mental issues. There's also a loss of dreams. Precisely. Um, exactly that. So let's just kind of say that current professional athletes need to take their transition seriously. They need to take it very seriously. You're more likely to be bankrupt than not when you finish your career. You're very likely going to experience mental health issues and lifestyle issues such as divorce um, and so on. So you ask the question, well, what can pro athletes actually do about this? And the first thing, like with many things in, in terms of your mental well-being, um, is awareness. Be aware of what actually could potentially happen and accept it. Don't be every, like every other professional athlete because that's, that thinks, well, this is never going to happen to me. Because what's the psychology of a successful professional athlete? They think themselves, here's reality, they think that they're up here. That's what makes a successful athlete. I'm better than everyone else. I, it's not going to happen to me. Maybe just bring the ego and push it to one side and just deal with reality. Real awareness and real acceptance of actually what you're, what you're getting yourself into. See, if you want long-term financial stability, 
Whatever you do, don't become a professional footballer. It's a terrible choice if you want long-term financial stability, statistically. Know that going in. Because if you know it, you accept it, you believe it, you're going to start to make some good choices while you're still playing. So, investing. Invest well, don't spend your money, pay yourself first, find good advisors around you. And I'm sorry, in professional football, they can be quite hard to find. Um, I would advise professional athletes not to go with the advisor or the agent that is being spoken about in the changing rooms, because there are some very charismatic individuals out there who manage to convince professional footballers that they should come and use their, their services and invest with them. And I mean, you, 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 might, you might not know, but there was a, an investment uh, fiasco around UK film. A lot of footballers lost a lot of money. They were being advised to make these investments by their agents. So just be very mindful of that. Mm -hmm. Make good investments with your money in your earning years. Because of course, let's not forget, a typical professional high-earning athlete will be front-loading his earnings in his lifetime. Over the course of his life, his earnings are gonna go from up here. When he retires, they're probably gonna come right down here. Unless he's one of the, one of the two to three percent that are able to keep it going. The David Beckhams, for example. The majority, your income falls off a cliff. Know that if you're spending during your prime earning years as a professional sportsman, you are taking away from your future self. So that's the financial side of it. And obviously financial distress can also cause uh, anxiety, depression, addiction through self-medication of, of those uh, feelings. Um, but what about the lack of purpose or the loss of purpose and, and identity. How can a currently playing athlete prepare for the point in time where, which will come, where they, they transition out of their sports and the majority uh, will be quite quickly forgotten by the public, no matter in how far, yes, in how will. much of the limelight they have been. Yeah. yeah. How um, can they prepare for that journey? Very, very simply, um, I've got a very good friend of mine, was a professional rugby player, very successful professional rugby player, and whilst he was playing, he got one degree, then he got another, then he got another, he now has as many degrees as a thermometer. He's <laughs> a bright guy. Um, he now works in a private equity fund. Uh, he was working, unbelievably outside of the game. That is not normal. Uh, that he is an exception to the norm. Studying can be very useful. So number one, get yourself educated. Go and get yourself some qualifications. It doesn't need to be a degree, could be a diploma, could be anything, but just build something outside of the game. I know if you're a professional athlete, I know you've got plenty of free time <laughs> um, because that just comes with the territory. Go and get yourself qualified. Second thing, you don't need to know the answers now. You don't need to know what it is you're going to do when you retire um, or, or when you transition out of the game. But why not start exploring it? Why not start exploring what you might like to do? I'm, I've, I trained as a financial advisor whilst I was playing. 
Uh, I also traded the stock market. I also trained as a psychotherapist and I was also a property investor throughout the entire time. And I ended up becoming a property development lender. And still you struggled with the loss of identity and the that, that depression comes as, that came with that. That, that comes as something separate. And I'd, I'd, I'd like to kind of make the point that it's okay to struggle during a transition. It's normal. Out of my friends, since I've retired, I've done some ruthless research into transition. Um, I've spoken with a lot of people, not only my friends that have retired uh, over the last decade, uh, but across sports, meeting different athletes, 100% of them have had some form of transition struggle. Not a single one. I'm, I'm sure there will be exceptions out there, but every single one has had some form of struggle. So just know, know that going in. It's not going to be easy, but that, that doesn't mean that you're not going to get through it. You will. And you can make it as smooth a ride as possible by preparing and starting as early as you can. Because the earlier you can start getting educated, exploring work and work experience, researching and reading around mental health and trying to understand yourself from a psychological perspective can be very useful. So you elaborated on the fact that any professional athlete retiring from, 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 the, from the game will struggle in one way or another. I reckon it's, it's, um, it's a spectrum of, of uh, you know, how severe that struggle can be that will be influenced by how well prepared you are. Uh, and you mentioned a few things that you can do to prepare for that. So some people completely unprepared are more likely to just completely crash, uh, suffer from addiction, drug abuse, alcohol, uh, gambling, uh, uh, as you mentioned, divorce as a follow-on of that acting out or in its own right, because uh, if a professional athlete just uh, is, is not playing anymore, just sits at home the whole day, um, it can create relationship issues and all that. Mm. Um, and then on the other side of the spectrum, it can still be, the, it's normal that there is a kind of a adaptation process needed mm. to, to your new identity or find your new uh, mm. identity. But the earlier you start with, with creating that identity and, in, and, uh, and, and uh, pursue interests outside of, of, of the game, uh, the more likely you are to have a soft transition or, or soft yeah. landing. Um, I would see clubs, managers, coaches in professional sports having a responsibility not just for the athlete to perform in the game, you know, finding the right uh, uh, talent, training the talent, having them perform, but also in preparing them for what comes towards the end of the game and the transition out. Mm. How, how do you see that responsibility? Yeah, I mean, the, the argument's been made before that clubs have a duty of care to look after their players, players that have devoted their lives to creating success for the club on the field. And when they're no longer in the game, they, they should be looked after. Um, the, the tough question is, well, how, sh how should they do that? Um, should it be proactive or reactive? Should there be an alumni? If you've ever played for Manchester City before, we're always going to look after you. Is, 
probably not the right way to do it. What is the right way to do it? To take an example from um, professional rugby, um, there are two teams that are currently leading the way for Premiership rugby in the United Kingdom, and that's Saracens and Exeter. Um, Saracens, um, spearheaded by their owner, Nigel Ray, um, require every player to be doing something outside of the game, outside of training, building towards something that they can go into when they can no longer play the game. Exeter fall close second behind Saracens. This is a really interesting thing. Saracens and Exeter were the two teams in the Premiership final last year, the two top teams in the UK. Now, the argument there would obviously be made where well, they've got the best players. They've got very, very good players. My argument would be, if you're working towards what you're going to do after your career, there's a certain amount of anxiety that can start to dissipate and start to lift. Anxiety has a tangible physical impact on our bodies. If we're anxious about the future, fearful about what might come when we retire, that will manifest itself physically in our performances. And by working out outside of the game, building towards your future, you can start to lessen that anxiety. It means that you're going to perform better in the present. It means you're going to perform better at the weekend. Saracens and Exeter, as clubs, I think, recognise that. And the sooner directors can recognise this and start to take transitions seriously and preparing and studying outside of training and games, because there are a lot of directors that want their players to go home and put their feet up and just offload. That's rest time. There's a lot of directors that want you to do that. If they can start to recognise that, actually, I can see a tangible result in the bottom line. We're more likely to win on Saturday if our players have been able to let go of some anxiety about the future because they're studying outside of the game. That's something I'd like actually to see a piece of research done on. I see an interesting analogy here is uh, more and more companies realizing if they invest into the, in reducing anxiety, uh, addressing mental health issues, addiction, all sorts of uh, um, uh, mental afflictions within their workforce, yeah. um, it's a worthwhile investment. It's worth paying those therapists, coaches, possibly psychiatrists, um, because of the opportunity costs. And, and it, so it's the same as you say uh, in, 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 in these clubs or, or generally in sports. So if you are anxious about the future, uh, consciously or subconsciously, mm. you, it takes away energy from you. Yeah. It, it's, an, it's an opportunity cost. You don't perform as well. So from a club's perspective, it makes sense to invest in either a, a, a career coach, therapists possibly, or at least facilitate access to uh, those expertises for the players, even from a pure economic perspective. So yeah. some corporates have recognized that. I know, yeah. I know uh, uh, some, especially tech companies, internet companies, some yeah. banks, uh, they have teams of, of, of therapists coming in. Yeah. Uh, um, and it, 
it makes sense from a balance sheet perspective as well. That cost is more than offset. So uh, that's that's an interesting thought. That that uh, so professional sports. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a worthwhile thing to do, not just ethically, yeah. but purely from a business perspective as Completely. well. Completely. I think we'll see we'll see a big shift as well um, if there's a tangible piece of it, uh, research based um, evidence put forward. Someone comes in and conducts a piece of research into this because at the moment we're seeing a lot of corporates starting to value it, starting to know that it has the impact, but they can't they can't actually see it in pound notes yet because it's it's hard to it's hard to yeah. There's no direct causality no direct, that can be measured yeah. exactly. It's the same with pro sport. If there was a piece of research done that just said, look, there is there is a tangible um, piece of evidence statistically, your your athletes are going to perform 18% better if they're studying outside of the game. We need that level. That will see massive uptake, um, I, would, I would have thought, uh, at, at that sort of level. But in the, in the meantime, there are clubs that are doing it across sports. Um, there are players that are starting to recognise this and really start to work outside of the game. But we need to see it being far more the... The, the common practice, not the exception. And how far do you see the taboo around uh, mental health issues, depression, anxiety, addiction, uh, be a specific issue in professional sports? Because uh, I'd reckon in, uh, in professional sports, uh, in many of the disciplines anyways, you have to be strong, you have to show that, yeah. you know, you. You're resilient, and and uh, and often it doesn't go along um, with with the concept or idea that this person can also be vulnerable and depressed and mm. and, and have issues. Mm. So, a to to perform such research, mm. you know, to, to 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 actually be able to gain that information mm. from people who are probably more likely to and do not want to talk about that than the average population. It's hard enough in the average population, mm. and at the same time making them understand that A, it's okay, because everybody struggles, um, and B, um, that uh, um, they do accept help or proactively you know, seek help when they feel that they struggle, be it during the career or especially when, when, when uh, retirement comes. Uh, so in how far do you see that mental health is still a taboo uh, in connection with professional sports, is, is, is that a big problem? Is it changing? Do you have any recommendations for clubs or athletes how they can navigate that? I think particularly in male-dominated team sports, um, it, there is still a stigma. The, we spoke about the nature of uh, professional sportsmen um, earlier. The nature of professional sportsmen when it comes to um, uh, putting on a mask, not showing your feelings, the macho culture, I'm fine, I'm going to get on with it. It, it. There is still a stigma and it's, it's, it's a hard one to know quite how to get around it because um, what makes a, a successful rugby team, for example, let's use rugby as the, as the example, um, what makes a successful rugby team is big tough guys that are going to go out and fight and go to war. One of those guys is turning around to say, I'm actually struggling, I'm a bit depressed at the moment. And really the best thing for him is for his teammates to get around and say, don't worry, it's going to be okay. 
But now those guys have got to go out and win a game of rugby. It's gonna. It's There's a lot of psychology in winning the game as well. It's not just skill on game. the field. It's so uh, players players that are struggling won't want to share it with anyone else because they will fear that the coach will drop them. The coach will obviously probably empathise, probably feel quite sorry for you or want to want to help as best they can, but that's not at the expense of the team. So sorry, you're going to have to sit out whilst you get better. Players don't want to go, don't want to even risk that. So what do they do? They put the mask on. Everything's fine. They smile exactly as I've done. You turn up, you get your job done, and you go home and you deal with it at home. Um, what we are seeing now um, is, is players engaging with confidential counselling services. So in rugby, for example, there's a, there's a, there's a hotline that you can call, uh, and that's across other team sports as well, and across leagues and so on. And the, the stats that come out of that are, are quite surprising. Um, but consider this. Retired rugby players, uh, you've got a just over a 50% chance of becoming depressed within the first year. Of those that struggle with depression, only 20% seek help. And that's now they're not in the team environment anymore. So why do you think is that? That would be learned behaviour carrying over into the next phase of their life. So what's worked for them as a professional rugby player, uh, they're now going to, in that first year or two after retiring, um, those are the sort of habits and behaviours. Second nature, basically. It's yeah. second nature. So you still have that mask on. Uh, you still portray this image of being a big man, if you're a man, or big big woman, if you're in the in the uh, women's rugby league, um, and um, and seeking help is as a show of weakness. That can make it very difficult for family, uh, people around, friends to actually pick up on that there's something wrong. If you're still wearing this mask and everything's fine, but actually inside something is nagging away and building up yeah. to eventual disaster. Yeah. Um, how can that, again, particularly in a career ending transition, uh, how can that be practically alleviated? Do you have any suggestions for families of professional athletes, for instance, um, to be more aware or better prepared or what can they do because 50% chance is a high chance. Yeah. It will happen to every second yeah. family of a professional athlete that their loved one is or will be affected by this. Yeah. I mean, the, the obvious thing to look out for is if you're a, a family member or a close friend of a retired professional athlete, is to look out for behavioural changes. So are they sleeping more or less than what they normally were? Are they eating more or less than what they usually would? Um, are they pulling away? When you, when you call them, do they not pick up? When you text them, do they not text back for a couple of days? Um, do they cancel appointments and meetings? Um, do, they, um, do, do they look and act as though they're in a fog? One of the classic things that someone that's depressed will say is, I just feel like I'm, I'm fogged up. I feel like I'm in a fog. Uh, and maybe ask 
questions that might prompt them to turn around and say, yeah, I'm not feeling quite right. Um, are you feeling okay? You look as if you're caught in a bit of a fog. Uh, am I right? And they might just turn around and say, yeah, I have been feeling a bit. If they, if they turn around and, uh, and say something positive, well, that's not necessarily them saying, uh, an indication that they're depressed, but it could just be your first red flag, and once you get a, a handful of them, um, now's the time to suggest that they go and start speaking to a professional. But you've got to remember, someone who's struggling emotionally, one of the best things they can do, well, there's, there's a couple, um, number one's exercise. One of the first things that stops when you finish playing professional sport is your amount of exercise that you do per week drastically falls, if not completely, um, because you just, you just want to leave it, leave it behind. Exercise releases certain endorphins, endorphins that we've already discussed about you may have an addiction to. Um, carry on exercising when you retire. Doesn't need to be crazy intense. Cardiovascular exercise is probably the best. Um, keep exercising. Compensate that. It's basically like a coming down after, after high. So you uh, come down. Just, it's, it's, it's a come down from but, a long but, but career But also, sports, I, mean, I, yeah. I wouldn't necessarily frame it as a come down. You want to continue that throughout your life. There's no reason why you can't still be running 5K every morning when you're in your 80s. There are people that do it, and that is going to live. That is going to promote a long, healthy life. But it would feel like a come down if you suddenly stopped the exercising or so drastically reduced Precisely. it that you don't have the amount of endorphins anymore. Your brain is used to to actually just feel balanced. So you feel a withdrawal. Exactly. Yeah. So exercise, engaging with friends and family, those those closest to you, just having conversations with a good friend. A problem shared is a problem halved. Um, it can really alleviate the acute symptoms. Not necessarily going to deal with the whole thing, but it's going to make it easier, not harder. Thirdly, would be to consider professional help. Go and speak to a qualified coach, psychotherapist, maybe even a psychiatrist, who can, who can combine the two treatments for depression, being medication, talking therapy, and just put you on the road to recovery. Because let's, let, let, let's look at it this way. If you're starting a struggle, are you staying, are you plateauing at that sort of level of, say, a minus three on the happiness scale? Or are you getting worse? Let's make sure if you do fall down, the only direction is you're just getting better. And over a course of time, it's never a quick fix. If you've, if you've managed to slip into something like depression, uh, it's not going to be a, a, an overnight fix. But let's make sure we're heading in the right direction. That's very interesting. Um, you're both a professional athlete, now retired from your game. At the same time, you're also a next gen, uh, in a, coming from a very successful family business. You also built your own successful business. Um, and uh, your family, with your family business, had a so-called cash event where the business was sold and, uh, and then you built your family office around that. In how far do you see an similarities between an entrepreneur or a whole family going through a cash event and a professional athlete retiring? I think you know where my question is leading at. 
Yeah, and it's it's. Uh, I've been able to unpick <laughs> that one. It's a really good question because a cash event for a first gen. As that first gen, Matriarch or Patriarch, continues with life, it's likely that their concern will turn to legacy and passing on their wealth to future generations. Um, not always, but it's likely. Um, we've heard the phrase shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, and it's 91% of those that have ha may, had a, a major financial windfall, uh, cash event in their life, um, will not see their, their capital passed on two generations. 91%. Um, so inheritance and the control and the passing down of wealth should be at the forefront of first gens and also second gens. Because uh, if they're coming into the money, well, now the, the process just repeats it. They're going to want to pass it on to their children and their grandchildren. Let's compare that with a professional athlete, particularly a very high-earning professional athlete. They front-load their earnings in their lifetime. They typically will earn 90, 95, 99% of their lifetime earnings within the first 30, 35, 40 years of their life. So you can compare that with a cash event that is building up over that time. And then at some age where they retire, mm. can be seen similar to somebody selling their business. You suddenly have a change of role, of purpose, and, and a lot of money. The game's changed. <laughs> Sorry to use that phrase, but it has for both. A liquidation event because you've sold a company, a liquidation event, well, it's not really a liquidation event, but the event of retiring from pro sport, you need to make some serious life changes if you're going to have sustainable wealth, multi-generational. And there are certain behaviours, there are certain things that you can do in order to stack the odds in your favour. Um, you can never... You can never control completely other people. Uh, you can make good decisions yourself. Um, uh, and, and, and that's kind of your start point. Do you see a, a, a cash event um, also um, similar to transition of a, a, of a professional athlete into, into retirement from a perspective of purpose and strug person struggles identity? Yeah. Because entrepreneurs and like self-made first-generation shirt sleeves, yeah. entrepreneurs, um, in terms of resilience and drive and goal, yeah. uh, you, you could see some similarities between them and somebody um, who built their professional career in sports. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would, you, you see it time and time again. The entrepreneur who sells a business, he's now got more money than he could ever spend, really, in a lifetime, but he goes straight out and starts another business. That, then, is really successful, sells that straight out and starts another business and as an athlete you can't really do that you can't as yet. an athlete you certainly can't do it but if you just if you just stay with me one of the reasons i would imagine that entrepreneur is doing it is he loves the game loves building businesses it's what makes him happy but at, we spoke about this um some time ago now it feels um around um if there's 
something lurking emotionally in your life that's still with you and you haven't let go of or dealt with or anything else, business can be a very good outlet. It's been a very good outlet for me and my family uh, and it is time and time again for successful entrepreneurs. So the guy that starts the next business, the woman that starts the next business and the next business and the next business, do they really know what their purpose is? Do they really have uh, a tangible set of values that they live by that are real to them? Or is it all about proving something to someone else? How much money can I make from an ego perspective or from a challenging myself perspective? Is that really what makes people happy? Is it really? So it can be also, for some people anyways, a coping mechanism for just lack of purpose, yeah. or similarly to, to a past traumatic experiences. Completely. And, the, and to draw the comparison then with uh, the retiring professional sportsman is, well, now that he's retired, does he know his purpose? Does he know what really what his values are and what direction he wants? And probably he has the ability to choose what direction he now takes his life in, as does the entrepreneur who's just sold out. They are now... They have resource behind them. As we've already explored, resource doesn't mean resourcefulness. Uh, they're two, two different things. And to be resourceful would mean to go out and do a seriously uncover what it actually is your purpose. What actually is important to you? What are your values? That's your start point. Once you know what your values are, once you know what your purpose is, now you, everything else can build off of that. You can build your goals and your actions on a day-to-day, hour-by-hour basis that are all aligned and congruent with serving your values and serving your purpose. That right there is a fulfilled life. And the most fulfilled people on the planet, whether they know it or not, structure their life in that way. So that's what I'd see, I'd see as being the two similarities that are required if you're an entrepreneur selling out a business or a professional athlete coming into his retirement. In our conversation, the, the concept uh, or the reality of shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations uh, has come up, basically meaning the, 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 the wealth and success uh, uh, that has been built by a first generation uh, in over 90% of cases doesn't make it past the two Uh, succeeding uh, generations and there's a lot of research and uh, trying to make sense of that uh, happening Um, what what uh, seems to be a bit of a pattern is that mental health issues addiction acting out family conflict um, play a much bigger part in that reality than families would like to disclose or that demographic would like uh, to disclose um, as you are in your second generation uh, um, in uh, in your family uh, 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 business and our family office what are your thoughts and you must think about uh, that reality of shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in, in, in three generations what are your thoughts around what will you do with your kids 
or your brother with with uh, with his kids mm -hmm. who will be the third generation who are the ones at risk of mm -hmm. and it's not not all about money there's a lot of you know uh, else uh, uh, that that uh, that could be happening in in, in that uh, third generation what do you have any uh, ideas for yourself any advice to mm -hmm. to, to second generations uh, who are in, in in those situations what can you do to to build the resilience with your next generation, with the third generation, uh, and to prevent uh, that happening to your family? I think most, most families, and certainly, certainly the, the, the ones that I've, I've worked with in a coaching capacity, focus on financial capital. And that's, uh, and that's where the, the priorities lie. How do we preserve capital, pass it on in the most efficient uh, way possible, um, make sure that it keeps growing. Um, recognise that inflation is going to keep chipping away, so we've got to be earning X and so on. Um, really important. But the weighting of value on financial capital comes at the expense of weighting in other areas, being, and this would be where I feel is probably we need to see a lot more value attributed in, in families is emotional capital. So if you're first gen, recognizing that, okay, you don't want your children to have to go through the hardship that you went through. You want to give them the nice things in life. You want them to be able to have good access to fantastic education, health, um, in enjoyment. What's the cost? That would be the question I would always ask. If you're going to give your children anything, what's the cost from an emotional capital perspective? Because if you give your children everything from a young, particularly a young age, and the younger it is, the more impactful it's going to be throughout the rest of their life, um, there will be a, a cost, probably around entitlement, um, probably around a lack of value for the things they have in their life, a lack of value for the financial capital that you're trying to pass on. So a shift of focus, financial capital is still really important, but just to shift the focus now to emotional capital. What can I pass on to, to the next generation now, uh, my, my children? So if I look at myself, um, I, this is going to sound interesting, I suppose. Um, I wouldn't fear my children going through adversity, not in the slightest, because I know from direct experience and what I've devoted my life to, um, that that will build emotional resilience. They're going to be a stronger, tougher person as long as they react to it in the appropriate way, which I'd be there to help guide them through. In terms of what I pass on to them, will it still be there for them to pass on to their children? That comes to me, is centered around entitlement. Can we raise our children so that they don't feel entitled, so that they feel that they've earned what they have in their life? Um, that doesn't mean saying, well, you can't have access to any of the family capital. It's giving them some purpose so that they feel engaged with the process, so that they have some goals and targets and can have the wins along the way 
and the failures and the adversity and so on. Um, in order that they don't end up receiving the capital when I am no longer around. Um, and they don't fully value it. And they don't have the emotional capital to pass on to their children. So, a long answer to your question, but it would be to consider emotional capital being just as important as financial capital when planning for the inheritance and transfer of wealth. Do you see disproportional focus on financial capital by yes. these families as um, possibly one of the drivers why very wealthy uh, families tend to um, have more issues of addiction, of Absolutely. mental health disorders within their family. Completely. Because if, you're, if your focus is all around um, capital, is all around money, um, that seems to gear you and your family up for emotional struggle. Um, it comes, again, at a cost. And it's, it's quite hard if you, if, you, if you don't stay conscious of looking after each other's emotional well-being, um, educating yourselves around it, because you, you, you are more likely to have issues with mental health if you're an ultra high net worth individual versus being a normal individual. And issues around mental health when you are ultra high net worth individual uh, makes it more likely for you or your next generation to actually lose that wealth that created the problems in the first place. Precisely. Uh, but uh, you're also more prone uh, this way uh, to lose them without having the awareness around that. Yeah. Actually, there's um, a point I, I, I sometimes like to make when I speak to, to family office principles or families. Um, even if you look at mental health from a pure non-emotional perspective, so without uh, uh, considering the actual suffering and all that, uh, that's, that, that's, that's uh, you know, going on, mm. even, even just from a pure business and uh, capital preservation uh, viewpoint, considering mental health risks in the family and with key people, uh, trying to prevent that um, and identify issues early on before acting out can actually destroy a family legacy and a family fortune, I see actually as a paramount element of a risk management strategy yeah. of a family office. Absolutely. Um, I mean, like we're seeing it in the corporate world already, aren't we? Valuing having a team of emotional counselors, coaches uh, on hand to help members of a company um, through adversity, and it's exactly the same in a family. Um, if you if you genuinely valued emotional well-being amongst your family as as a, a precursor to a successful transference of wealth, that's ultimately what we're talking about here, um, then why wouldn't you, if you're the first gen um, or the matriarch or patriarch, uh, start to implement that into your family and into your family office? So we could make the, the case that even if the focus is fully on capital, on financial capital and capital preservation, the proper attention to emotional capital can still serve that other purpose. Not that I'm saying that should be uh, the, the objective, but yeah. even, even if that's just, just a viewpoint, 
um, of, of preserving wealth uh, over past the third uh, generation. Quite. Uh, taking emotional capital seriously will also achieve I mean, look, if that financial If goal. you're taking emotional capital seriously, you're going to need to bring in external help. Um, yes, you can work with each other, help each other, support each other. Um, if these are your family members, it's going to be very hard to get any really meaningful emotional work done. Um, this has to be put in the hands of a professional. You have to, it has to be it has to come from a professional, professional coach that can help you with your values and your purpose and so on. Professional psychotherapists, um, psychiatrists to help with underlying emotional issues, trauma, adversity, and so on. Um, that is going to leave your family with the resilience to be able to cope with transition, with the transference of wealth in the years to come. Brilliant. Richard, this has been a very insightful, interesting and uh, moving conversation. I thank you very much for your time and uh, being so open about your, your own journey and your passion to pass this on and help others uh, to, who are going through this um, or to help others prevent um, uh, the struggles that can be associated with such a journey. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Cheers, Ian. Thank you for listening to our podcast and do reach out to us directly with any questions or queries you have via our website, paracelsus-recovery.com. On social media, for Facebook and Instagram, please use the handle Paracelsus Recovery and on Twitter, Paracelsus Rehab.